Chronicles of Leadership by Tudor Ricards. Chapter 2 A New Career Wendy Lockinge As I prepared for my induction ceremony at the University of Urmston, I had very mixed feelings about the event and my change of career. I need Robbie more than ever to be with me today. There will now be more news stories about the celebrity detective who became an academic and, heaven forbid, a feminist role model. I will not mention one important influence on me. When I was in my teens, a terrifying story filled the headlines week after week. The north of England lived in fear of the murderous attacks on women by a maniac who became known as the Yorkshire Ripper. I started cutting out newspaper reports. While my friends were collecting posters of Gary Glitter and David Bowie, or Star Wars characters, I turned my bedroom into an incident room, with maps and photographs of his victims, prostitutes, and in the dreadful distinction of the time, innocent women. I followed the frustrations of the police, as the Ripper mocked their failure to capture them. I even wrote to the local newspaper saying the tape recording was a part of the game he was playing. The police were being diverted away from concentrating on where the pins on my map said the Ripper operated. They didn't publish my letter, but I was later proved right. When Sutcliffe was caught, I took down all the cuttings and burned them, crying for the 13 victims. Afterwards, there was only one profession that I wanted to follow, one in which I could stop killers like Sutcliffe. I wanted to lead murder investigations and not be fooled by the games played by the criminals. I was not angry at the Ripper. He was outside my anger, nothing more than a sick creature to be hunted down and put away. I wanted to be the hunter. I would not allow myself to play out their cruel fantasies. I would play them with my own games on my own terms. My parents expected me to make something out of your life but I was determined to leave school as soon as I could and join the police. A canny careers teacher found a way to deflect me from leaving school early. She suggested I could avoid a pointless battle with my parents and take a university course with the intention of fast-tracking into the police through their graduate entry scheme, which thankfully is what I did. As well as mollifying my parents, my graduate move into the police and my subsequent fast-tracking was a brilliant idea. I loved the work, and found a way of dealing with a culture which then was struggling to overcome a century or so of discriminatory practices. I also met and eventually married Robert Lockinge, someone whom my parents approved of almost as much as I did. It was a desperately long, drawn-out affair. We'd met on one of the assessment centre courses inflicted on new recruits. After that, he would accidentally pop up from time to time, and we'd catch up over a few drinks. He'd been assigned to a technical department upgrading traffic surveillance systems. I fancied him rotten. So did quite a few others, including some of the guys. He sent out signals that he enjoyed my company, was not interested in a relationship. I persisted in sending out signals that it didn't matter, and he would in time perhaps see the opportunity he was in danger of passing up. And so it came to pass. On one of our catch-up and also platonic chums drinking sessions, he now cryptically had something he couldn't tell me. 
and then he proceeded to tell me. I concentrated as hard as I could. Marriage will be good, he said. Wow, I agreed with slight respiratory difficulties. Affection, yes. Sex, oh yes. Mutual compatibility, obviously. And then the downer. Except we couldn't. It would be too much to ask. Ask anyway, I said in a bit of a whisper, waiting for the dream-destroying mummy. Was he already married? Gay? Heading for celibacy, maybe the priesthood? He told me enough about his work to understand why marriage would be impossible. He would always have to keep his work secret, even to his wife. She would have to accept that he would be regularly leaving home, unexpectedly and without explanation, staying out of contact until he returned. If anything happened to him, someone would be in touch, she said. So at least no news is always good news. Well, if that's the problem, you'd better hear why it won't matter, I said. I have to tell you, I'm actually working for an even more secret department which arranges all your assignments. So I'll be the one contacting me if anything goes wrong. We both laughed. We talked until the bar closed. That night, a lot of other concerns were wonderfully resolved. We married quietly a few years later. I had won the lottery. Work that I loved, a sensational home life. The relatively easy pregnancy with Jessica, and then after an early scare, the arrival of Penny. Two extended periods of maternity leave. Perfect? Nothing is perfect. There were those absences. Each time he left, often in the middle of the night, I tried to believe that he would be coming back. Part of me always feared the worst. And at those times I remembered why I would not be totally unhappy to end my career as long as Robbie came back safe. My disillusionment with my life at what Robbie called a national supercop was gradual. I painfully acquired the streetwise tactics I needed to survive as a senior police officer. My targets were the vilest of the vile. The ends were to bring the justice the perpetrators of crimes of the worst kind inflicted with no remorse for the suffering of the victims. I had to become a game player, a gambler. I learned everything I could from the greats of my profession, in fact and fiction. I studied and gained additional qualifications into the nature of sociopathic disorders. There was no shortage of opportunities for combining theory with practical experience. I did catch killers. And the press needed a great detective. They made me into one when a team of over 100 officers tracked down the motorway murderer, the self-proclaimed Silent Shepherd. I was able to work out that the trail of clues he was leaving were the bodies of the victims. They were based on the story of Hannibal Lecter in the book and then the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Then there was more publicity over the book written by a disillusioned security officer, Petra Whitehouse. In a best-selling autobiography, codenamed Spider Woman, she claimed that we were both counterintelligence officers and that we had survived a terrorist attack together during an overseas assignment. According to her, the would-be assassin was killed and the death covered up by a false story involving a, tra a trained and tame adolescent tiger known as Chila. I had to attend a press conference where I confirmed I had worked briefly with the author and that there had been a Tiger Cup known as Chile. The encampment to which we had been assigned was a remote forest region of Sri Lanka. But there was no counterintelligent work, 
only a peacekeeping force sent in after a bomb had killed a hundred people in the capital, Colombo. Shortly after the book was published, White House was exposed as a double agent and she defected to Latvia, where she now lives. The book was dismissed as propaganda, but the Tiger Cup Chela became part of the mystique surrounding my work. I was becoming Wendy Lockinge, celebrity detective. During that period, I lost out in a promotion for which I felt I was by far the best candidate. It was a blow to my pride as much as to my ambition. Bertie Farm, a rising star in the police, was a sympathetic member of my interview panel. He gave me some invaluable advice later. It's game playing, Wendy, he said. You don't even know the political game has been played against you. You've become too prominent. That makes you a threat. What to do? Learn to play their games. Or get out. You'd be snapped up if you wanted to go into politics, but the games there are just as bloody. I didn't want to go into politics, but my continuing studies had given me a different idea. A university doctorate, maybe, and I could become an advisor and still work with the police. Each assignment of Robbie's was leaving me increasingly fearing the worst had happened, until he reappeared safely. Then my worst nightmare. One of Roberts's disappearances coincided with the Airbus crash over New York. An intuition told me he was on board. In panic, I contacted the emergency number for families of travellers. I couldn't get any information. I used my own connections. I still couldn't establish where Robbie was, or even whether he'd been travelling under an assumed name on the plane. After 15 days, I was contacted by a stranger. Even before she spoke, I knew it was going to be the worst possible news. My life was about to change forever. It was all handled as delicately as I would have expected. A phone call, a silent drive in an unmarked car. Then I was escorted to an ingeniously locked safe house. I'm still conditioned enough to describe it in no further detail. Someone from a branch of the security services was waiting for me. She knew my rating and showed me enough me to accept her own credentials. I had the impression that our meeting was being monitored by someone close by. We sat facing each other. I was in no mood for extending civilities. Was Robbie safe? I could detect nothing from her expression. After a short pause, she began her prep performance. Something of a problem. She was not in a position to reveal the nature of Robbie's responsibilities. She even needed reassurances before she could say anything further. Alive? Out of reach? Assurances, she repeated gently. I concurred with no more than a gesture. I would not be expected to sign anything. I just needed to know as much as I could be told about Robbie and what was going to happen to me and the rest of my family. And so she explained. Clearly, step by step. Someone was travelling under Robbie's name among the passengers who were taking the inflated flight, but it might not have been Robbie. What can you tell me? That Robbie may have been taken or is having to remain undercover. In either case, you and your young family are in danger. What we have arranged for you is not going to be easy for you. She then stripped away all hopes, leaving me only with the slight possibility that Robbie would one day return. A lengthy holiday had been arranged as compassionate leave. After that, I would begin a completely new career. Bertie Farmer's advice had been prescient. 
I've often wondered since whether this plan had been in preparation for some years. Whatever the actual circumstances, the only chance of helping Robbie survive was for me to play a grieving wife, accepting his dreadful death. Then, overcome by the tragedy, I was to take up a completely new career as an academic specialising in forensic science. There would be no further contact unless... Another pause. Unless we feel you might be able to help us out on some matter requiring your outstanding skills? I did not reply. Nothing to be said. If I was needed, I would be contacted. In some shock, I was soon back in the unmarked car on my way home. Some years later, I have not yet been contacted. I have been faithful to the agreement and I will not attempt to find out what has happened to Robbie. This is a source of added pain, as it has become a source of resentment by Jessica, who will not let it go. Now I have accepted beyond the occasional periods of wishful thinking that my old life is gone forever. We are in the faintest of foolish hopes that one day Robbie will turn up, unchanged, unharmed. Soon I will be making an acceptance speech at my induction as Vice-Chancellor at the University of Ermston. It affirms my new life is the only reality I have to cling to, to make something of. Wendy Lockinge's acceptance speech. I can hardly find words to express my feelings of honour and pride in accepting this post as the fourth Vice-Chancellor of the University of Ermston. I need hardly explain to this audience that the post is unconnected to one I occupied earlier, namely as deputy head of what was then known as the Vice Squad. In accepting, I became the first Vice-Chancellor whose career has included time spent as a serving police officer. There are other unusual features of my previous life. It seems that none of my distinguished predecessors has shared a household with an orphan tiger until a more suitable foster home became available for her. I'm also the first woman to have been appointed to the position of your Vice-Chancellor. This wonderful ceremony seems an appropriate one for swearing vows. For my part, I promise my colleagues at Ermston full commitment in supporting you in every way possible in your efforts to advance knowledge and to provide the highest levels of moral and intellectual education to our students. To our students, I promise on behalf of myself and the broader university faculty a collaborative approach to dealing with the various challenges you will meet. To the people of this region of England, I also confirm my support to the policy of my predecessors in our outreach programmes, through which faculty and students engage in practical projects in and for the community. Finally, I want to share with you a promise I have made to myself. A university is a microcosm of a society in that we have shared values and aspirations. However, there are unique aspects to a university through its primary concern for seeking truth without fear or favour and in educating our students and ourselves in the virtues of ethical behaviour as well as in the professional discipline. We speak truth to power, or as it is sometimes said, our dilemmas of trust and integrity are ours to resolve. To these ends, as long as I hold this office, I shall never make the mistake of assuming 
that the various methods and skills acquired in my previous profession will be transferred carelessly into the way I shall discharge my new duties at Ermston. Thank you for the faith you have shown in me through my appointment today. Sometimes later, I appointed Orlando Cardinale as my personal assistant. He turned out to be an excellent choice. If he has one weakness which will hold him back, he is too sensitive for the sort of zoo that a university often appears to be. He is intelligent, competent, utterly loyal. When trouble, he radiates concern with his neatly cut wavy dark hair to his furry caterpillar eyebrows to his polished black brogues. He's approaching 40. Also approaching six foot tall, quietly spoken and permanently anxious. You can imagine his internal care engine churning away as his mobile features crumple into concern mode at the slightest indication of his being in the presence of a distressed other. Students find him attractive. Is virtually invisible to faculty, being non-threatening and a non-academic. Tony Scrivener told me with some relish a verse he had heard about him from one of the female students. Orlando Cardinale is never rule or snarly. He wears a dark blue business suit. The student thinks he's rather cute. Our Mr. Cardinale. Orlando is an admirable personal assistant. I resist thoughts that he could be moved to administer justice in one of the more lawless territories of the university. I've inherited a soulless suit of rooms intended for the incumbent vice-chancellor and administrative staff. They remind me of a government block in Moscow I once visited. When I arrived, my personal suite of offices was guarded by a receptionist and an office junior in an imperial-style antechamber. I suspect visitors waited patiently at the Vice-Chancellor's pleasure. I had the area converted into a less formal space. Receptionist and junior have gone. Visitors are now brought from the main university reception by Derek or one of the other security staff to be greeted by Orlando or myself. The new arrangement accidentally provides opportunities for me to indulge myself in the spot the Vice-Chancellor game. When Orlando is allowed, I would play the role of a deferential personal assistant. I won points if a visitor tried to wheedle information about the vice-chancellor out of me. Bonus points are scored if Orlando appears after me and he's mistaken for the vice-chancellor. Such fun. But it was too cruel for Orlando. He practically begged me to release him from the play-acting. He said he was making him feel bad about deceiving people. His pained expression told me he thought I was behaving in a manner unbecoming of my high office. I agreed that we would stop the experiment. I sometimes play a single-handed version when Orlando is otherwise occupied. The game is, I know, partly revenge for the treatment I received as I was making my way as a young detective. It is compensation for the career I had left behind. Then something happened that told me I would not be able to return to my old profession even if I had wanted to. Now, as a battle-hardened Vice-Chancellor, I was pleasantly surprised recently to receive a call from my old mentor, Bertie Farm. I've been invited to lunch and to address a meeting of the Association of Chief Police Officers, ACPO as is better known. 
This is an influential group, sometimes called the Top Coppers Trade Union. I accept it. Looking forward to catching up with Bertie, whose career continued to flourish. Membership of ACPO is restricted to the highest ranked police officers from the 40 or so regional forces of the United Kingdom. Scotland has its own version of the association. They're powerful people. I've been asked to appear before a working party examining secondments of officers to leadership roles outside the police force. ACPO was founded in the 1940s to meet the policing needs of the more complicated society that had emerged after the war. Its operations make a classic example of an apparently transparent institution which operates in many ways that require secrecy. I sometimes think of it as a secret society, with its own informal groupings connected to powerful members of society everywhere. These include counterinsurgency activities and other high-sensitivity work. Even as an officer myself, I would hit upon the limits of my security clearance when on a criminal investigation. A request for confidential information would be unwillingly agreed upon. At some point, I would meet an unnamed intelligent person who produced a read-only document, or RO document. As its name implies, an RO document can only be read once and then in the presence of an authorised person. No note-taking was permitted. The document has been stripped of the various coding or tagging identifiers of its origins. Even if the person granted access had a photographic memory, it would have been of limited value. The most significant aspect of an RO document was the extensive parts which had been blacked out. This was information that had been withheld or redacted. You never found out anything about the nameless officer with responsibility for seeing the rules for examining an R document are correctly followed. They have no obvious rank, although their security status will be high. The first time I was provided with an RO document, I pushed to find out what had been concealed from me. The response was well rehearsed, that's redacted information. I was to experience this several times, accompanied by deliberate and patronising put-down. In effect, the unnamed intelligence officer was indicated he, usually he, was in a role that outranked mine. A clear message, sorry dear, this is big boy stuff. My talk at ACPO was well received. It still felt very strange. I was introduced as one of our most distinguished former officers. I felt back at my old school, now being received with goodwill as a grown-up. The venue was a country club and leisure complex in the Midlands. I recognised some of the participants who were in their second uniform of smart casual wear. I half expected there might have been an ulterior motive for my invitation. In that, I was not disappointed. My talk was scheduled immediately before lunch. I'd been invited to join my host at the rather nice buffet laid on for us in a way that made it clear that whatever was being discussed after lunch was off limits for me. I was back to being an outsider. As I was putting away my notes at the podium, a familiar large figure made his way towards me from the back of the room. It was my former chief from my time in the precursor of what became known later as the Serious Organised Crime Group, or Soccer. Bertie Farm greeted me with an all-enveloping hug. His breath smelled of mouthwash, which I assumed was intended to mask a late-night session in the residence bar. 
we agreed that each of us looked as wonderful as ever and congratulated each other on our career successes. I'll have trouble calling you Sir Bertie, I warned him jokingly. Which is fine by me. I'll struggle with Vice-Chancellor and Professor Lockinge. So Wendy and Bertie it is, just like the old days. He escorted me towards the front of the lengthy line of refueling chief officers, helped himself to oversized fill-your-plate portions from the hot-cut server, topped with additional portions carved to order by a white-clad waiter. The scale of the portions was that found in police and prison canteens around the country, although the chef was operating here on a less meagre budget. Most table places had been claimed. The diners still in the line had left hotel keys or conference packs at their table places. One table at the window encore had been remained uncontested by zint of an invisible reserved for Sir Bertie sign. We made our way to it. Curiously, we also appeared to be invisible and isolated to the hundred or so diners in the bustling scene. Colleagues who might have been accepted to greet or be greeted by us avoided eye contact. Something was up. We enjoyed a social lunch. He had almost total recall of cases and a wealth of catch-up information. Well, you don't call it gossip, which would be far too indiscreet a practice for my distinguished host. He'd already demolished the contents of his plate. I was still enjoying a less violent encounter with my dish of salad. Then introduced the real reason for inviting me to lunch. Wendy, it's been a delight catching up like this. We mustn't lose touch. It's been too long. Too long since Dobby's death and my forced move out of the career, I thought. I've heard nothing but praise for your developing career, Bertie continued. You have a reputation for hiring the sort of bright minds we are looking for. As you know, it takes a special skill to see all the signposts for the fog. Take university demonstrators. Are they hotheads? Or up to something else altogether? Whose sides are they on? Are they idealists? Or some of them who perhaps might have been nudged in your direction by some old codger like me. I was on full alert. Was he hinting that the recruitment of spies was still taking place into and out of universities? And whether any had been nudged in my direction by some old codger like you? Bertie Farm looked pleased. You see, we still have what can't be trained. Who knows what might crop up in some quiet out-of-the-way corner of England, far from the corridors of power, say in some research institute, with secrets to conceal from animal rights demonstrators. So that was it. He was inviting me back into the club. There was something big taking place in the north of England, something I was considered useful to be involved in, and important enough for my operational status to be reactivated. I began to feel a little less like an outsider. Thank you, Bertie, I said casually. I'll certainly bear that in mind. So much for my promises made on my induction day at Ermston.